Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Well, thank you for joining us for Therapeutic Thursday's podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members to sit down and discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. So I'm your interview and panel leader, Lance Ray. Thanks for joining us today. We have with us Bhavik Shah, Kelly Goodlett, and Mark Skildon. So we're going to talk today about IDSA's recommendations for SEP1, focusing on antibiotics. This was published in the February 2021 issue of Clinical Infectious Diseases. So we're here to discuss and sort out that set of recommendations. So I'm going to let our interviewees introduce themselves at this point. Bhavik? Yeah, thanks, Lance. My name is Bhavik Shah. I am an associate professor at the Jefferson College of Pharmacy in Philadelphia. And we have Kelly with us. Hi, everyone. I'm Kelly Goodland. I'm an assistant professor at Midwestern University in Glendale, Arizona. And my clinical practice site, where my specialization is in infectious diseases, is St. Joseph's Hospital and Medical Center in downtown Phoenix, Arizona. And Mark, tell us about yourself. Oh, thanks, Lance, for uh, having us on today. My name is Mark Skildum. I am a clinical pharmacy manager at United Hospital in St. Paul, Minnesota. I primarily work with our emergency medicine, critical care, and cardiology teams. So I've been really involved in a lot of the sepsis work at my hospital. I'm excited to talk a little bit about SEP1 today. Great. And my name again is Lance Ray. I'm actually a clinical pharmacy specialist in emergency medicine at Denver Health Hospital System in Denver, Colorado, and I'm going to be your moderator today. So let's start off. So what is SEP1 and how does it impact patient care in the ED? Yeah, so just a, a refresher for those on the who are listening to the podcast today that maybe haven't have heard of SEP1, but maybe don't know where it came from or why they're being pressured to get those uh, broad spectrum antibiotics in as quickly as possible. The U.S. Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services has a number of quality bundles of which the Severe Sepsis and Septic Shock Early Management Bundle is one. They've had this one in place since October of 2015, and really it's a way for CMS to incentivize and require hospitals to supply some of their quality metrics around patient care. It's part of their inpatient quality reporting program, and really hospitals can receive additional reimbursement if they meet the elements of the bundle and report those elements into CMS. So for SEP1, it's really focused on those severe sepsis and septic shock patients. So as a reminder, those are the patients who meet the SERS criteria with suspected infection, but then also have organ dysfunction and hypotension despite fluid resuscitation. So they're the patients that you're really suspecting have that severe sepsis septic shock syndrome. A lot of the measures according to it are tied up in what they call the three-hour bundle. So it's that early use of fluid resuscitation, early broad-spectrum antibiotics, there's lab components to it, as well as vasopressors if necessary. So it's really kind of this set of requirements that hospitals have to meet in their care for their severe sepsis and septic shock patients. And one of the things that's interesting about it is it is an all or nothing type measure. You either meet it for a patient by hitting all of the things or you don't. If you just miss one thing, you kind of miss for that patient overall, which I know can be frustrating for some sites. And one of the 
intended consequences of this is it really pushes towards quick application of broad spectrum antibiotics because you have to get those in by the end of the three hours. And it can be frustrating because for some sites because you can have documentation failures where you did all of the right things, but they don't get put into the chart quite right. So it ends up being a technical fail, even though it is potentially the clinically right thing happened for that patient. Mark, great summary, great rundown of, of SEP1. Fantastic. So why are we here today, everyone? Why are we reviewing this? What concerns does IDSA have with the current SEP1 measure? Kelly, in other words, why did this position statement come out, in your opinion? Sure. So the major concern highlighted by IDSA is the potential for SEP1 to contribute to antibiotic overuse. The authors of the position paper note that sepsis is often overdiagnosed, including in patients who may not truly have a high likelihood of bacterial infection. And SEP1 may contribute to this overdiagnosis by allowing clinicians a very limited time window for patient assessment and observation to potentially rule out an infectious process. So essentially, we have aggressive broad-spectrum antibiotic therapy being mandated, as Mark mentioned, without adequate consideration of diagnostic certainty or severity of illness. And we all know that if a patient is started on antibiotics in the ED, very often that's what they'll be continued on in the inpatient setting. So all the risks of unnecessary antibiotic therapy, selection for drug-resistant organisms, adverse drug effects, C. diff, all of those are potentially at play here. Interesting. So it sounds like IDSA is kind of making a stand here. You know, I've started to see some other society guidelines come out in response to the SEP1 recently. So this is interesting. Another question for you. So is there evidence that SEP1 really does lead to increased antibiotic prescribing or other harmful consequences? So IDSA draws a comparison to the 2002 core pneumonia measure, which required antibiotics to be administered within four hours for patients with community-acquired pneumonia, which we know, like sepsis in general, has a lot of non-infectious mimics, such as heart failure exacerbation. This measure has been linked to increased antibiotic use and increased rates of C. diff infections without mortality benefits across multiple studies. A recent article published in Clinical Infectious Diseases this year also looked at the impact of SEP1 specifically uh, across over 100 hospitals, and they found a modest but significant overall increase in broad-spectrum antibiotic days of therapy and a nearly 90% increase in overall antibiotic use among patients with severe sepsis directly following the start of SEP1. I think it's also interesting to note that John Little and colleagues from Hennepin County Medical Center here in Minnesota recently published a paper in the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Journal that looked and saw that of the patients who met sepsis criteria in the ED, only uh, 60 to 75% of them were actually discharged with a sepsis diagnosis. So if you think about that, you know, you're looking at two-thirds of the patients who get potentially treated with broad-spectrum antibiotics for sepsis in the ED, potentially not needing those antibiotics at all. And thinking about it from like a stewardship perspective and from a potential acute kidney injury with Vanco and all sorts of other things, it really is interesting to think about how this drive towards early antibiotics could have unintended consequences. Glad you mentioned that, Mark. You know, it's almost discouraging to see this 
intended or un- unintended consequence after all the work that pharmacists have put in to uh, antibiotic stewardship, right? <laughs> I mean, we're so good at adding stop dates to our antibiotics and our ICU teams uh, de-escalating antibiotics on the floor. But I feel, you know, working in the ED and working in several different ED since 2015, when these CMS elements were applied, that uh, it takes a really skilled pharmacist to avert antibiotics in an ED. And so, you know, the EDs always cites ICU. Hey, they can always discontinue antibiotics up on the floor and the floors up there saying, oh gosh, look at what they started in the ED. But we all see why. Those are great points, Kelly and Mark. Thank you. So what revisions to SEP1 were proposed by IDSA? If they have issues with this, what, what was proposed as a corrective measure? Well, first of all, IDSA advocates for the removal of severe sepsis from SEP1 and really limiting its application to patients with septic shock, arguing that the strong supporting evidence supporting rapid antibiotic administration to improve survival is in those shock patients, but not so much for the potentially septic patients without shock. The authors are very careful to note that they're not arguing that patients with severe sepsis shouldn't receive timely antibiotics, right? But that for a national quality measure, there really needs to be strong supporting evidence of benefit. So early antibiotic therapy for patients with severe sepsis without shock and a potential source of infection may still be a very appropriate recommendation within, say, a clinical practice guideline, but then that's going to still allow providers to exercise their discretion and judgment versus being compelled to prescribe potentially unnecessary antibiotics to stable patients in SEP1. Great summary. So maybe drawing a line in the sand a little bit between severe septic shock and regular sepsis, and maybe differentiating between broad spectrum antibiotics and a little more targeted. Thank you. And Lance, I think one of the other interesting recommendations that they've made is really moving towards having a clear and reproducible definition of septic shock time zero, because that seems to be oftentimes one of the driving factors is that because time zero is a little bit nebulous, it really pushes everyone to be faster and faster because they don't want to miss those criteria because of a coding error in the background that shifted time zero by 10 or 15 minutes and what would have been a pass becomes a fail because of time zero. I'm glad you brought that up, Mark. Like, so back up, what is time zero and what are the practical challenges in, in finding time zero in the ED? Yeah, so time zero is when we talk about the core measures and everything having to happen within three hours, that three hour clock starts at time zero. And that's usually defined as the presence of the documented infection or the new organ dysfunction and SERS criteria. So it really comes down to being a documentation. It's not when the patient hits the floor of the ED, it's when those things are kind of documented in the chart which can really make things a little bit gray, especially if you've got an EMR that maybe rounds to the nearest 15 minutes on some of its flow sheets for temperature or heart rate or things like that. And it rounds either up or down, kind of depending at what point it is, which can be a very frustrating, frustrating thing. We've had to do a lot of training with the nurses at our site to hit, there's a button in our EMR that instead of rounding to the nearest 15, we'll put it at the exact time, which is an interesting thing. And then also, 
a lot of this comes down to data abstractors. And data abstractors are people who go into the chart of these patients and they kind of review the documentation, the provider's notes, the things that are available in the flow sheet, and then they help to determine what that time zero is. So it is still a very person-driven process at a lot of health systems. And it can be frustrating because there have been multiple studies out in the literature that show that different abstractors will pick a different time zero when presented with the same chart. There are also studies out in the literature that show that quality improvement staff and clinicians, when faced with the same chart, will pick a different time zero. So that really kind of ties back into IDSA's recommendation that there needs to be a much more clear and reproducible definition for time zero so that everyone's kind of playing by the same rules. And it takes a little bit of that pressure off to drive, drive, drive and get those things in. Because if you have a clear time zero, you're much more able to kind of plan out, you know, we've got the three hours, let's do a little bit of an assessment here. Maybe instead of being saying that, you know, this is sepsis of unknown source and I've got to go vancozosin, hey, maybe I've got a little bit more time that I can figure out, hey, no, actually this is pneumonia sepsis or urosepsis, and we can go down a little bit narrower path with the antibiotics. Wow. Thanks, Mark. That's super interesting. So in summary, what I'm hearing is that IDSA is making a few recommendations here. One is maybe redefining time zero. Another is maybe removing the requirement for documentation time of sepsis as time zero in the first place. And also, it sounds like they want to clean up the sepsis definition as well. All right, so anyone else? Yeah, so piggybacking off of what Mark said, you know, the IDSA recommendations are to better define time zero to be objective and reproducible. And so this is where they're inviting other task forces to weigh in as well. So this is not just IDSA saying this is the way it has to be, but they did offer some suggestions as to what that objective data points can be. So that way it's easily extractable and easily identifiable. So it doesn't matter who is auditing the chart or who is the clinician evaluating a patient. They suggested serial blood pressures are below a certain threshold or a patient who fails to respond to an adequate fixed volume of crystalloids of one to two liters. This is a little bit better than saying a milliliter per kilogram because then abstractors have to figure out the volume, was it adequate and it takes into flow sheets and how much was the flow rates and that sort of thing. Other sort of things that they identify were very high lactate levels greater than four or the time of vasopressors needing to be started. And the reason why IDSA has selected these as potential options is because they mimic some of the recent early septic shock clinical trials, randomized controlled trials that were done. And so this is what they're suggesting. But they also recommend that hospitals document when antibiotic orders are placed and also when the first broad spectrum antibiotic is given. So I think this will help both give clinicians time to evaluate a patient. And then for those patients who do truly need aggressive therapy, we have those timestamps available that can be easily trackable and identifiable. Thanks, Bavik. That's fantastic. Sounds like IDSA is really making some practical recommendations here. 
that we can all follow and improve to avoid some of these uh, intended or more of the unintended consequences. I know, as I said earlier, I'm, I'm glad that IDSA has come out with a paper, at least to create some discussion. I know some of the other societies like American College of Emergency Physicians have, have come out with some similar statements recently, but I'm glad that there's at least some discussion about this. So how can we support stewardship even within the confines of SEP1? Say that's all we're given. Kelly? Well, one consideration that Mark and Lance, you actually brought up earlier, is selection of that most narrow spectrum targeted allowable antibiotic regimen that's still going to target our likely etiologic organisms. Broad spectrum, it's a very nebulous term, right? And I think there's a tendency among clinicians to just default to, well, I know I need to give broad spectrum antibiotics. That must mean vancopeme, right? But SEP1 actually does not mandate anti-pseudomonal therapy or anti MRSA therapy. So for example, ceftriaxone is actually an allowable monotherapy option. So you always want to think about the patient. Do they have healthcare exposures or other risk factors for drug-resistant organisms? And if not, considering a more narrow-spectrum option, especially for those more equivocal cases. Definitely. And I think one of the things that can really be done to help with this is to really make sure that you're using the clinical decision support tools in your electronic medical record to their fullest potential, whether that's creating order sets that help drive the antibiotics for different flavors, if you will, of sepsis towards the most narrow therapy that meets good care standards, or whether it's creating best practice alerts to remind nurses to draw the blood cultures before they administer the antibiotics. There's a lot of things that can be done in the background to help hardwire this process and just make it easier for providers and nurses and the whole healthcare team to really focus on the care of the patient rather than having to focus on meeting the components of the step one measure. I'll also add that those of us who practice more in the inpatient setting, that we should recognize the constraints and often limited information ED clinicians have to work from and not lock these patients into one to two weeks of antibiotic therapy just because they received a dose in the ED. So antimicrobial stewardship programs should really continue to conduct those prospective audit and feedback interventions, particularly targeting patients who may meet sepsis definitions under SEP1, but are ultimately at low risk for bacterial infection. For example, a lot of our patients with COVID, they did receive an antibiotic dose in the ED to comply with SEP1, but then we've been very successful at our hospital at not continuing antibiotic therapy on the floor. And to sort of piggyback off what Kelly and Mark said, so Kelly raised a good point earlier about Blood spectrum doesn't necessarily mean anti-immersive and anti-pseudomonal, but we know in reality, there, you know, clinicians might be hard-pressed and wanting to start that. So what can we do as pharmacists to make sure that once they do get in the floors, we have enough data to sort of de-escalate? And so there was a really interesting paper that was published in the April 15th, 2021 issue of Clinical Infectious Disease by Despande, they found that they it included over 14,000 patients over in 164 hospitals of all sizes, types, and regions of the country. And they found that in culture-negative pneumonia patients who had anti-MRSA and anti-pseudomonal drugs started, over 95% of patients didn't have a MRSA swab done, nasal MRSA swab. And so we know that the high negative predictive value of a negative 
MRSA swab. So this is something that if we do have patients who get initiated on anti-MRSA drugs to also recommend in the ED or build it into the order set to draw that nasal swab. And that can help the de-escalation efforts when the patient hits the, you know, goes upstairs. I agree, Bavik. That data can be so helpful in the inpatient setting and getting cultures when appropriate, because I know it's so much easier to, you know, have a de-escalation recommendation accepted if you can point to that pan-sensitive E. coli, right, versus not having that data available. Great points all around. Y'all hit on something that I'd love to talk about. And that what are broad spectrum antibiotics, right? Ceftriaxone is one of my favorite broad spectrum antibiotics. I'll I'll be provocative and and I'll say that, you know. Well, thank you everyone. And I'm glad we got to get together to talk about the IDSA position paper on CEP1. I know, as I mentioned, there's some other position papers coming out and emerging. The American College of Emergency Physicians came out with one uh, not too long ago as well, focusing a little more on a global, not just antibiotics, but a global picture of things, including fluids, for example. Well, thank you again, Mark, Kelly, Bavik. This was a fantastic discussion. I'm glad we could review this uh, important topic and review the IDSA SEP1 statement. So if you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's clinical resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as resource centers, including those on critical care, nutrition support, opioid management, infectious diseases, and more. Other offerings, including the Credentialing and Privileging Resource Center, the Precepting Toolkit, and forums, such as the ASHP section of clinical specialists and scientists connect community where you can exchange ideas and post questions with your peers. So thanks again for tuning in for this session on Therapeutic Thursdays and join us here every Thursday where we will be talking with ASHP member content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Thank you for listening to ASHP official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.